you. Good evening, everyone. Uh, what a great time of worship that was. For those of you that were really meeting with the Lord or sensed him doing something, hold on to what he was doing because you might need to come and, you know, do a bit more business with him later on. I hope you've had a good day. It's quite warm in here this evening, isn't it? Yeah, that's quite encouraging. I might even take my scarf off. Okay, here's a question for you as we kick off this evening. What is God like? What word or words come to mind as you think about that question? What are the first word or words that pop into your head? And if one of the words is loving, swap that for a more specific word. Because that can be quite a sort of general word that means lots of things to lots of different people. What are the first things that come to mind when you think about what God's like? Now, we're not going to take round an open mic, but I want you to take take note of and hold on to what it was that first popped into your mind. Um, a, a, a Christian author who died a number of years ago, very famous guy, some of you might have read some of his books, a chap called A.W. Tozer, he wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I'm not sure if I think it's the most important thing about us, but it will be and is, I believe, a very significant thing about us. Because what we believe about God is hugely significant, whatever we believe about him. Because what we believe about him determines the kind of life we live. And it shapes who we are and who we become, uh, depending on the kind of relationship we do or don't have with him. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what we believe or what we think about other people, people around us, it makes a difference to the kind of relationship we have to them, doesn't it? So here's a slide. You might have seen this picture this week. This is Mr. Putin on Monday having a meeting with some of his economic advisors who are all the way down the other end of the table. Clearly, he doesn't think they're very trustworthy. So they're a long way from him. So if I think, for example, that God is, let's say, I think God's unfair or he doesn't really care about me or he's not really that interested in me, I'm not really very likely to want a relationship with him. Or if I think God is maybe a bit like a sort of, I don't know, a tricky headmaster and uh, he disapproves of me or his standards are just, you know, too high, too, hu too far up the scale for me to meet and he's basically a bit disapproving of me most of the time, he's not likely to become my kind of go-to friend, is he? And if I think God is a bit like a sort of grandpa, you know, cuddly grandpa who's got loads of ice creams in his fridge, I'm probably not likely to get the most out of the kind of relationship that he offers me. And I'm probably likely to only end up going to see him or going to chat to God when I'm really in trouble and need his help. What we think about God will make a huge difference, does make a huge difference to who we are and what we become. You get the idea. And actually, we all have a picture of God that hangs in our mind palaces. You've got yours, I've got mine. And they're all different, and they all depend on all kinds of different things. But they significantly depend on the kind of things that we've been told about him or picked up about him as we've kind of, you know, done life to this point in time, you know, from the various voices that we've been exposed to in our lives. And the kind of picture we have about God is also significantly influenced by particularly our um, earthly parents and the kind of relationship we may or may not have had with, with them and particularly fathers but also it's influenced by other authority figures in our lives. 
Now, as Andrew said, we're beginning a new series this evening looking at uh, some of the meals that Jesus had with different people in the Gospels. We're looking specifically at the Gospel of Luke. And we're looking at ki kind of some of these tiny little videos. They're like Gospel videos, as if somebody had a webcam at each of these meals. We're looking uh, at what went on. And I know that for some of us this evening, God wants to change the picture that's hanging in our mind palace. He wants to take it down and he wants to put up a more accurate one. And I think he wants to do that for some of us as we go through this series. Because when we look at Jesus, we see God. Jesus said he came to show us the Father. Brilliant verse in John chapter 1, verse 18. Hopefully it's going to come up on the screen. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, this is John, one of Jesus' first disciples... Yeah, according to John, he was Jesus' favorite disciple. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He, Jesus, has made the Father known. So when we look at Jesus, we see the Father. And if we ever have any kind of idea about God in our lives that we can't see backed up in the life of Jesus we're actually believing we've got an imposter image of God there. And for some of us, God wants to change that picture uh, this evening and as we go through this series. So, tonight's mini webcam uh, video was taken in Matthew, the tax collector's house. Uh, if you've got a, a Bible or most more likely a phone, you might want to get it out and turn to the book of Luke. And uh, it's a really short story. It's only five verses long, but it's a rather shocking little story, as we'll see. But before we read it, I just want to kind of um, define for us the groups of people that are in this story, because Jesus is having a meal with three groups of people. He's having a meal with tax collectors. Matthew is a tax collector, and not surprisingly, a lot of his mates were tax collectors. Now, tax collectors in... Uh, whenever Jesus lived, you know, the first 30 years AD. They were really hated people. They were Jews, and they lived amongst the Jewish people, but they collected taxes for the Romans, so they were really hated, particularly because they charged extra money a lot of the time and made money off the back of their fellow people. Now, we don't tend to hate HMRC. <laughs> we might hate paying our taxes, but when you think of the most hated people in British culture, it's pretty unlikely that you're likely to think of HMRC. Maybe you are, but I don't think so. So to, when, we, when we read tax collector in the Bible, we need to think, who are the kind of people that we personally, or you know, that our culture, or sections of our culture might despise, or might really not like? Um, or you know, people who have power and influence, or whatever, that we think they don't use it very well. Maybe they really are corrupt, maybe they're negligent with it, or maybe we just disapprove of the way we use it. So for some people, it might be sections of the police. You know, the media would have us believe there's lots of corruption in the police. Maybe for some of us here, it's those baby boomers who've got loads of money, who's pushed up the property prices, who are spending all their money on buying homes in Spain, and you know, spending spending lots of time on holiday. I don't know. Maybe it's white supremacists. Maybe it's a certain sort of branches of the politicians, political parties. Anyone who we might consider guilty. Guilty of whatever. Who are they? Who would, they, who would, who would be the people that you would want to rant about on social media? 
if you kind of had a bit of a free-for-all. Who are the people that you would, you know, really like to take down or, you know, sit in front of and grill and, you know, disapprove of or whatever? And of course, they'll be different for different people. When you see the word tax collector, think about who those people might be for you. Then there were other sinners at this meal. Well, they just kind of are the people that everyone else would disapprove of for various other kind of sins. So maybe if we were, you know, this was a current contemporary story, it would be people who'd made racist posts on social media. People who don't care about the environment and leave massive carbon footprints by the way that they live. Maybe they would be politicians who were guilty of hypocrisy. Maybe people who just lived with real prejudice and political views that were just so wide of the mark, you know, everybody would think that they should be disapproved of. Those were the kind of other sinners that were in this house. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were, in that day and age, recognized at being the experts in the law, the people who knew how to tell everybody how to live. They were the ones, according to the prevailing culture of the day, that had the, you know, had the sort of moral authority. Well, in our post-Christian culture, you know, the sort of religion of the day is secularism, isn't it? Or secular humanism, or whatever you want to call it. The kind of belief that we can have this kind of near-perfect culture without any kind of religious restrictions at all. So where do we find our modern-day Pharisees today? They don't tend to be in religious buildings. They tend to be on Twitter or on social media or in other public arenas, telling us all how we should live, identifying the standards of the day that lead to a righteous life according to their definition. And like the Pharisees of this day, they tend to be the people that get on their keyboards and do a lot of ranting when people get things wrong or when they step out of line or when they make mistakes or they don't quite hit the mark. And they call for judgment and action and punishment and cancellation of those kind of people, the people that, that step outside the lines that they believe are important and have drawn in the sand. And of course, we can all find some you know, Christian Pharisees online who love the old ranton you know, about different people. But by and large, it's the sort of um, the Pharisees are, are out there and they're the politically correct people in our culture. So as we read this story, when you see the words tax, tax collector, Pharisees, whatever, imagine a room full of people like that. So Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. So here we go. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. And there's a whole backstory to this. I don't believe it happened in one sentence. This is a summary of the story. Jesus says to him, follow me and be my disciple. So Levi, and that's the Hebrew name for Matthew. This is Matthew and Matthew who wrote Matthew's gospel. Matthew got up, left everything and followed Jesus. Then he held a great banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Why did he throw a great banquet? How could he afford that? Because he'd ripped off all his fellow countrymen. There were loads of other people there, many of Levi's ta uh, fellow tax collectors and other guests. Some translations say other sinners also ate with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law uh, complained, and they complained bitterly to Jesus. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Lovely. <laughs> Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners 
and need to repent. So what does this little snapshot tell us about God? What is Jesus showing us about the Father in this little cameo, in this little interaction? What does he want us to see? What he wants us to see, and what I believe God wants to remind us all this evening, is that God loves mercy. God loves mercy. I wonder if that word is what came to mind when you thought about what is God like. Was mercy the first word or merciful that popped into your head? Do you know God as a merciful father? Do you know his merciful heart towards you? I don't know about you, but I think we're very familiar with Jesus talking about justice. Jesus telling us to feed the hungry, to look after the poor, to love the widow and the orphan. And he does talk about that a lot. We're familiar with that and that somehow seems absolutely right. But here he is having a full-blown curry night with, with, you know, the worst people of the day. The day that people, you know, uh, the people that, that culture should have said, you know, cancel them. You shouldn't be seen dead with them. You know, don't go near them. That's who he's hanging out with. People that he should have been shaming and calling out their bad behavior and correcting them and making them into different, better people. Jesus is all about justice, right? That's why the Pharisees can't get their head around what he's doing. What are you doing eating with these scum? Because they knew God as a God of justice. And this looked like the least just thing he could be doing. Where is the justice in this? Where, what, what kind of message is he giving by hanging out with people like this? He's having a laugh. He's sharing stories. He's, he's, he's showing attention to and caring for the guilty people. The guilty people in their culture. The oppressors, the deceivers, those who've offended absolutely everybody else. Where is the justice in that? Here's the thing. God is passionate about justice. But I would say he is arguably even more passionate about mercy. If you do a word study in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word mercy is mentioned more times in the Old Testament than the word justice. And it's mentioned way more times in the New Testament than the word justice. I love it how Micah, the prophet, puts it in chapter 7, verse 18. He says this, mercy is your speciality. That's what you love most. This prophet knows God. They're connected, mercy, mercy and justice. But the word mercy, as I've said, is mentioned more than, it, than justice is mentioned in the Bible. Here's a little bit of technical stuff about the word mercy. Here's a definition I found, which I think is quite good. I'm sure there are a few of them, but here's a definition about mercy. Compassion, kindness, or forgiveness shown to a person you have the power to punish or harm. And I would argue because they deserve it. So that's why the Pharisees were indignant, because as far as they were concerned, these tax collectors and other sinners that Jesus was hanging out with, they deserved being cancelled. They deserved being challenged. They deserved being corrected. They deserved a completely different treatment from the God of heaven. Now, there are three Hebrew words, just a bit more technical stuff, that the Old Testament uses 
that are translated into the word mercy. The two main ones are this. The first one is rahum. Can you say that? Say that to your neighbor. Rahum. <laughs> I'm not very good at Hebrew. <laughs> and, and rahum is a feeling word. Okay? It's a word that's got feeling in it. And it's got the same root to the word as the Hebrew word for womb. Okay, I've got a womb. That's probably not news to you. You don't need a biology lesson or a diagram to know that it you know, belongs in the female body. It's where the bonds of human love between a mother and her baby grow. And they begin at conception. You know, I've done that four times. And therefore, this word, rachum, it communicates the kind of affection that a mother has for her baby. That's what that word communicates. We were doing some clearing out the other day, and I found um, a journal that I'd written when my eldest son, Tom, was born. Uh, and I'd written this as one of my first comments. I can't believe the strength of feelings that I've got for my baby. I can't believe the strength of feelings that I've got for him. Listen to God's words in Isaiah 49. This is God speaking. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. That word compassion is also translated as mercy. Though she may forget, I won't forget you. I won't forget you because I can't forget you, just like a mum can't forget the baby that she's given birth to. God is saying, look at a mother and look at the heart she has for her children. That is nothing on the heart that I have for you. That has nothing on the kind of feeling that I have for you, the way my heart is connected to yours. Here's another picture from this week. I don't know if you saw this one this week. This was from a video that went viral, yeah, on social media. It's a Ukrainian young mum. She's holding a phone, letting a Russian soldier that the Ukrainians have captured phone his mum in Russia and tell her that he's okay. Now, who knows who he'd killed? Who knows what he'd done as part of, you know, the invasion? But that is mercy in action. And I find it really interesting that it's a young mum who's handing him a phone, encouraging him to call his mother. Beautiful, beautiful picture as mercy of mercy. What does it mean that God feels like that for us? It means he feels with us. It means that his mercy isn't a mechanical thing. It's not a sort of cold act of the will. I must be kind because I'm God when they don't deserve it. It means his heart is moved for us. It means his heart is deeply moved for us. It means when God says, I'm merciful, he's saying, when I see you in difficulty, when I see you struggling, when I see you wrestling, when I see you battling, when I see you lost, when I see you going under, when I see you trapped, I suffer too. Yes, it affects you, but it affects me because it affects you. I feel it because you're my child and my heart is tied to yours. But mercy isn't something he, just something that he feels. Mercy is something that moves him to action too. So the other main word for, uh, for mercy in Hebrew is the word chesed. Say that to your neighbor. <laughs> what was the first one? Rahum, <laughs> chesed. No more Hebrew words after this. So chesed is a feeling word and it's an action word. So it's not just like a feeling of sympathy or empathy. It's an action word, which means God intervenes on our behalf. He can't stand back and do nothing. He doesn't want to just sit by and watch. 
It means he comes to the rescue and helps those who need and who want mercy. Hess said, is when I discover that my kid has stolen money and gone and spent it, and I put it right by paying it back. That's what chesed mercy is. A few years ago, one of our kids um, confessed up to a whole lot of stuff that was really pretty serious. They confessed because uh, mother, me, had, had applied quite a lot of pressure because I could see and sense that there was something going on, and this child didn't have the courage to fess up without the pressure. But under pressure, fessed up, and the shame and the fear of fessing up that had hold, held them back was just released in this moment of me knowing what had happened. And as this child fessed up and spilled all the stuff that needed some really significant attention, my heart broke. Not because of everything that had gone on and, oh my goodness, what does this mean and what are we going to have to do? But my heart broke for my child, for the mess that they'd got themselves into, for how awful it had been keeping all this stuff secret, from the burden that they'd been carrying on their own, for the shame that had kind of crushed them into just a portion of who God intended them to be. And my heart broke for them. But at the same time, because this child had fessed up, I was then able, we were then able to intervene and help help, you know, help directly, help point them in the right direction and really, you know, get them on a path to a completely different life. That's the compassionate, merciful heart of a God who says, I can't forget you like a mother can't forget their child. So what does it mean for us that God loves mercy? What does it mean for us that God is so merciful? I think the most significant thing it means is that we can approach him with confidence. God wants us, the Father wants you to approach him with confidence. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think about yourself, he wants you to approach him with confidence. Confidence that he'll be compassionate to you. Confidence that he's got a heart full of and a bucket full of mercy mercy for you. Confident that he wants to help you, whatever your circumstances. I don't know what kind of relationship, obviously I don't know what kind of relationship you had with your parents. You know, whether you were close to your folks, whether you weren't, what kind of stuff you could share with them, what kind of stuff you couldn't. When I was younger, I know that there was a whole pile of stuff I didn't you know, dare take to my parents, partly because at times I felt they wouldn't understand, but at other times I was just genuinely scared about what they'd say and how they'd react because of how they'd, how they'd responded to me in, in, on previous occasions. I didn't feel like I could trust them with me. So I had to hide me from them. And they had a part of me in our relationship, but they didn't have the whole me. If you're not confident about God's mercy for you, if I'm not confident about God's mercy for me, he doesn't get the whole me. He doesn't get the whole you. And so you can't be close to him if he doesn't have the whole you. So you'll end up with a superficial relationship with him. And he'll end up with a superficial relationship with you. You'll keep the real you. Maybe you do this. You know, a lot of us do. It's a journey. 
But you'll keep the real you hidden. Hidden from other people, but also hidden from God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, wasn't it? You'll keep your deepest needs. You'll keep your biggest struggles. You'll keep your biggest failures and your biggest fears. And the stuff that defeats you, you'll keep it from God. And so you'll keep his help from your life. And you'll keep an experience of his love and his acceptance and his approval of you. You'll keep that out of your life as well. And you'll end up looking to other stuff for the comfort and the help you need. And believe you me, none of them will succeed. None of those things, none of those places you turn to, none of those people you turn to, none of those you know, methods you think will help you, they won't. Because in the end, we all need mercy. Listen to what Hebrews 4 says, verses 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Newsflash, if you didn't know this, you've got weaknesses. I've got tons of them, ask Tim. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. So let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. When? In our time of need. The other day I was uh, driving down Swindon Road and uh, I was overtaken by this car going at a ridiculous... I hope it wasn't one of you. (laughs) I was overtaken by this car going at a ridiculous speed, driving very dangerously. Maybe it was Rog, who knows? (laughs) Anyway, and then he pulled it in front of me and caused me to slam on the brakes. And uh, I must say, I wasn't impressed. You know, if I'd had the chance and maybe the guts to get out of my car, I might have in that moment, you know, got out and, you know, said some things I regretted and told him what I thought of him. Anyway, if I'd known the reason, and I, of course I don't know, but if I'd known the reason, for example, for his terrible driving was the fact that he'd had a call and his mother was in hospital dying and he was rushing to, you know, to get there before she died, I would have responded completely differently. I would have slammed on my own brakes and let him pass. You know, it wouldn't have meant that he wasn't driving stupidly, dangerously or illegally, but I would have responded completely differently because I knew the backstory. That's how God looks at us. God knows your backstory. He looks at you and he knows your backstory. And it's like in this passage in Hebrews, he's saying here, it's like he's saying, I know you, I get you, I understand you. I understand where you're coming from. I understand your weaknesses. I understand your struggles. I understand what you wrestle with because I've lived on earth too. We don't have a priest that's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. I've lived on earth too. I've experienced loss and rejection and abuse and betrayal and injustice and loneliness and exhaustion and temptation. And yes, I didn't give in, but I know what it's like to be you. Come to me. That's what he's saying in Hebrews. Come to me and be confident that I won't judge you or punish you, but I will help you. I love it in Exodus 34. You might want to read it later on. In Exodus 34, Moses has asked God to show him what what he's really like. And there's this beautiful passage in Exodus where, you know, God parades his nature in front of Moses. It's the most quoted verse in the Old Testament where God says, you know, this is who I am. And it uses lots of different words. But basically what it's saying in that passage in those two verses, Exodus uh, 
34, 6 and 7, God is saying, I'm the Lord, the Lord. I'm merciful, I'm merciful, I'm merciful, I'm merciful, I'm merciful. He says it in loads of different ways. I'm slow to anger, I'm compassionate. But basically he's saying over and over again, I'm merciful. And it's like the minute Moses gets it, two verses later, he falls on, his flo- on the floor to worship God. But then he goes, right, well, we're a stiff-necked people. That, you know, you're merciful. You know that we're a stiff-necked people and we are rebellious. So forgive us. And would you actually, you know, come and be with us in, in the promised land? And will you make us our treasured possession? Moses has had a revelation of the mercy of God. And it's given him confidence to ask God, not just for help, but for a load more stuff as well. I love it. It's such a precious quality of the Father. He doesn't blame us for our weakness. He doesn't shame us for our weakness. Our failures don't disappoint him. They don't surprise him. They just surprise and disappoint us. But God knows. So he doesn't judge you for the fact that you've got an addiction. He doesn't judge you for the fact that you keep failing at the thing you're trying to overcome. He doesn't judge you for the fact that you struggle with temptation and you keep messing up. He doesn't judge you for the fact that you're not changing as fast as you want. He doesn't judge you for the fact that you're not as brave as you want to be or not as strong as you want to be or not as consistent as you want to be or as kind as you want to be. He doesn't judge you for that, but he does want to help. But here's the thing. Look back at the story. Last, last verse of what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. It's only the people that admit that they need mercy that receive it. Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees don't need mercy. He's not saying, he's not agreeing with their own perception about themselves, that they've got it all sorted. He's not saying that they're healthy. He's just acknowledging that they think they don't need mercy. He's saying that the sick people, the rest of the crowd, they're not trying to pretend that they're anything other than, you know, a bit of a mess. He's here for any one of us, whenever we're willing to admit that we need help. That's the thing about sick people, isn't it? They know they need help. Sick people receive grace. Sick people receive mercy. Sick people receive healing. Sick people go, yeah, I've got a problem. They don't say, oh, my problem is because of my past experiences or because of my environment or because of this person or that person. Or They don't blame what's going on on somebody else or something else. They don't try and justify it. It's like, yep, I'm sick. I don't know about you, but when I go to the doctor and I'm sick, I tend to be honest with him about my experiences. I don't sit there in a chair and kind of either sort of go silent or try and make him guess what's wrong with me and hope that he will. Or say, well, you know, yes, I've got a lump here, but actually it was somebody else's fault. I tell him what's wrong with me and hope he's going to make a diagnosis and come up with a cure. God, my heart isn't as soft as I want it to be. God, I'm struggling with apathy. I'm struggling with porn. 
I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with food. I'm struggling, Lord. Jesus, I don't love you like I want to. I don't care about these people that I know you want me to care about. And I'm sorry. God, I'm struggling to pray. It's one of my confessions at the moment. Help. God, I've given in to people pleasing again. And I'm not brave enough to speak up about you in the way I want to. Do you know what? There are two ways that we can come to God. Two ways that we can connect with God. One of them begins with me. This is what I deserve, Lord. I've, you know, I've read my Bible a lot. I've prayed so much. I've fasted so much. You know, come on, answer my prayer. Hear what I've got to say. And I can come into his presence with confidence because I've, you know, I've been doing pretty well at life recently. Or I think I'm in a good place with him. Or maybe it's the opposite. And I don't come to God. You know, my relationship with him is based on me. I don't come because I haven't been praying and I think I've been not doing very well and I probably can't be in his good books. Oh, God, start with me. I'll, I'll try harder. I'll do better. You know, I will get this sorted. We can come to God beginning with me. Got a little slide there? Yeah, no, there we go. We can, we can come to God and we can start with me. Or we can come to God and start with mercy. We can start with mercy. I don't deserve anything from you, but I need you. I need your help. And I need to experience your love because I believe you want to help me and love me. Friends, only the second one works. But have you noticed how easily we default to the first one? Only the second one works. That is the point of the cross, isn't it? Jesus hung there. Jesus was crucified. So he got the punishment. He got the consequences for my rebellion, for my selfishness, for the fact that I'm so independent, that I'm consistently trying to do life my way or my terms, have it on, you know, have my relationship with God my, my way. He paid the price, so I never have to. He paid the price, so we can receive mercy. So we can receive mercy, mercy every day, mercy every morning, mercy every lunchtime, mercy every evening. You know, Lamentation says his mercy is new every morning. And it's not a new mercy for a new issue or a new problem or a new need. Often it's mercy over and over and over again for the same thing. Because I'm so slow to change and I'm so slow to let him sort me out. Jesus has paid the price so we can receive mercy every day, every moment of every day. Friends, this little cameo is about God loving mercy. God loves mercy. He delights in showing mercy to his creation, in offering forgiveness and help to all of us that he's made who have no right to expect anything from him. But we only get to receive it if we acknowledge we need it. And I want to say to you, if you don't know how much mercy you need, you know, some of us are more in touch with our need than others. 
If you don't know how much mercy you need, I want to encourage you to ask God to show you. Because do you know what? We can be impressed by his power. We can be inspired by the courage of Jesus. We can be comforted by the presence of Jesus. We can be, you know, educated and gain wisdom from the teaching of Jesus. But do you know what? We are changed by the mercy of Jesus. It's mercy that changes us. It's experiences of mercy that changes us because it's trusting his mercy that enables me to get close to him. And it's experiencing his mercy that makes me more like him.